0: I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs for the Pratt Library, and we're delighted to see all of you today. Do you know what today is? What? It's Women's um, International Day. International Women's Day, if I got it right. Okay. <laughs> and March is Women's History Month, and this program that um, we do every year. This is the eighth year, so uh, it's you can see that you're here for a very successful afternoon. We're delighted to have these talented writers here. I want to say uh, a huge thanks again this year to Linda Duggins, who's over here waving her arms. Um, Linda is with Hachette Book Group in New York, the publishing company, and she's the person who puts this wonderful program together every year. So thank you, Linda. Let's give Linda a big one. Our other partner is Joy Bramble from Baltimore Times. Where are you, Joy? Oh, okay. I'd like to ask Joy to just say a few words, too.
1: And trust me, this will be a very few words. First of all, thank you so very much for coming to the library. And what a a wonderful way to spend the nicest, warmest day that we've had so far. (laughs) I know you're in for a very exciting program. This is our eighth year. And believe me, this could not have happened without publicist extraordinaire Linda Duggins. Linda and I met about nine years ago, and um, she actually came to our festival in Antigua I think three years in a row, and we decided, you know, it'd be, it's nice to go to Antigua, but it's also nice to be in Baltimore, and we chose March, we like women writers, and you're in for a fabulous afternoon. After this, after they they, um, they talk, there's a reception, and there are, of course, books and book signings, so thank you.
2: <laughs> wow. Give yourselves a round of applause. Seriously. This is awesome. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you, Joy and Judy, and thanks to the dedicated staff here at Uh, This is my library home away from home. I love this place. If I wasn't born and raised in New New York, I would probably have been born and raised in Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) This event happens every year in March, as you've heard, and this is the eighth year. And today is International Women's Day. Over 100 years ago, more than 1 million people attended rallies worldwide in support of women and our right to vote, to be trained, and to hold public office. 2014's theme is Inspiring Change. And today, many people will also gather around the world in support of gender equality for all. I am honored to celebrate Women's History Month with all of you as we travel the globe with these very talented authors seated to my right. Misty Copeland, author of Life in Motion. Misty is a recipient of the Leonore Annenberg Fellowship in the Arts, and an inductee into the Boys and Girls Club Alumni Hall of Fame, and the National Youth of the Year Ambassador of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. She is also, in her spare time, a soloist at the prestigious American Ballet Theater. Misty shares her inspiring story about growing up and overcoming what seemed to be insurmountable obstacles on her journey to that incredible life she's living and it still is her dream in the making. Lauren Francis Sharma, author of Till the Well Runs Dry, she beckons us to her family's (laughs) homeland of Trinidad in her moving, multi-generational, multicultural debut set in a seaside village in the north of Trinidad and right here in the United States proud, tenacious Marsha Garcia lives her life out loud. She is a talented seamstress who marries the handsome Farouk Karma who fell in love with her at first sight. They get caught up in their web of deeply buried secrets that threatens Marsha's family and the precious children that she will do anything to protect. Lauren Francis Sharma was raised in Baltimore. She's a homegirl. give her a round of applause. (laughs) And she graduated from the University of Michigan Law School till the well runs dry is her debut. The Secret of Magic is Deborah Johnson's provocative novel that entices the reader to step ever so gingerly inside the world of a young black female Columbia Law School grad, Regina Mary Robichard. She is the daughter of a prominent civil rights activist in the employ of Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And Regina must navigate through very unfamiliar customs as she is dispatched to Mississippi to investigate the murder of a black soldier. The thing is, Regina is a born and bred northerner. She's a Yankee. And I'm telling you, being black and a woman was challenging enough. But in the South, she learned so much about herself, she couldn't even imagine the things that she would be up against. Deborah Johnson's novel, The Air Between Us, received the Mississippi Library Association Award for Fiction. She she also lived in Rome, Italy for nearly two decades, where she worked as a translator and an editor. She lives and writes in Columbus, Mississippi. Sujata Massey's 11th novel, The Sleeping Dictionary, is a masterful tale of a country, India, and a young woman, initially known as PAM, You will find out that this woman, Pam, she has so much courage and determination it will send shockwaves through you. She was renamed Sarah, and then Pamela, and then Kamala, and along the way, she becomes this amazing amazing change agent that learns the true meaning of sacrifice and survival. Sujata Massey is a former newspaper journalist and author of 10 award-winning mystery novels. She lives near Washington, (laughs) D.C. Virginia Woolf said that women have served all these centuries as looking glasses reflecting the figure of a man twice its natural size. This is certainly one way of looking at oneself, and and it is true. I, I, however, love Eleanor Roosevelt's comment that nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. This speaks to the collective consciousness of the body of work presented today. Life in motion, till the well runs dry, the secret of magic, and the sleeping dictionary resonates with the declaration, declaration of choice and legacy with dignity and love. Octavia Butler, do y'all know who Octavia Butler is? Because I was about to say, if you don't, you better get to know who Octavia Butler is. She once said, I was trying to write myself in. Now that's real powerful to me. And these amazing panelists, is that's exactly what they did. The theme this year for International Women's Day is inspiring change, and you better believe it. These four books has done just that. So welcome, panelists, and welcome, audience. Thank you so much. Sorry about that. So we're talking about inspiration. Yes. Sure. Yep. And you know what, um, Judy, I think I want to move this over so we can see Lauren. I want to move the podium out of the way. I, mean, I can see you, Lauren, but folks can't. I
1: ain't my All right, you to push it
2: back, yeah, too. Yeah, I, I just, Joy, This is better? <laughs>
3: there's some seats in the audience. Do you think people should raise their hand if there's an empty seat?
2: If you have an empty seat next to you, could you please raise your hand? Okay, for, run, get the seat, y'all. No. <laughs> Raise your hand high. Just take a look wherever you see your hand raised and have a seat. And welcome. Wow. <laughs> I've never seen this room this crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we were talking about the theme for this year's International Women's History Day, and it's inspiration. I'd like the panelists to share with us what inspired them to write this book, and why now. Take it away, Deborah. Oh, my goodness.
4: (laughs) I was inspired to write this book. I was inspired by my grandfather, to begin with, who uh, served in World War II, was dispatched to Italy at a time he served in a segregated army, of course, at a time when he didn't really effectively have the vote to uh, the right to vote in his own state. And I remember when he came back, I was a little little girl. There was this photograph always on the bureau of my uh, grandparents' bedroom. It never changed. It was of my grandfather in his uniform. and he was so just such a wonderful person and so, such a good family person and so patriotic to the United States. He loved the United States even though he, w- he had been denied the right to vote effectively here. And his idol, the person he most believed in, was Thurgood Marshall. He loved Thurgood Marshall and the work that was being done at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And I can remember he would be, I would be there and he'd be reading the Kansas City Call, which was the African American newspaper in Kansas City, and he'd go, you know, that Thurgood, he sure knows him some law. And it was like <laughs> so wonderful. And I was so happy because he actually lived to see a great many of the changes that Thurgood Marshall initiated and the other lawyers at the Legal Defense Fund. So that was my main inspiration to start the book.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Misty? Um, all of these little people you see around her who inspired me to write this book. Um, all of the dancers that are here uh, I I never thought I'd be number one writing a book, number two writing a memoir and doing it at age 31 um, and I just felt that it was necessary for me to share my struggles to become a soloist with American Ballet Theater because I knew that my story was universal beyond just dancers um, coming from a single parent home of six kids uh, living in a motel for a fair period of my childhood and then discovering ballet at 13 years old and only training for four years before I went on to become a professional with one of the most prestigious companies in the world. But along the way, I had so many things that could have stopped me from dancing um, once I was a professional. So I just felt it was necessary for me to really show people that you can dream big and you can come from whatever obstacles you may have in your life, and succeed.
6: Thank you. Lauren? I also was inspired by a grandparent. Um, My grandmother uh, had a stroke um, a few years back. And we were in Brooklyn, uh, sitting next to her hospital bed. And I realized that she was sitting there, laying there, really. that I didn't know very much about her, Um, and I had to ask myself, you know, how is it that this woman has known me my entire life and I only know a very small part of her story? Um, And that story um, was the beginning of this book, um, her journey to America.
2: Thank you. And Sujata?
3: I also had a family inspiration. I started going on family trips to India uh, around the time I was nine years old. And it was about 25 years after um, India had become independent from Great Britain, which had ruled for about 350 years. And it during my visits to India, which I li- instantly loved it, and I wished I could have lived there and all that kind of good stuff, but every time I went back, it more and more would change, and it would get more and more American-looking, and um, whole streets seemed to disappear and were replaced by malls and things like that. And I really loved that old India, and I decided to write a historical novel set in India to kind of uh, – and set in Calcutta, which is the city where my father's family lives, because I wanted to have that for myself – And I wanted to also explore the relationship between India and England. And a lot of the books that I had read that were just sort of about the colonial period were mostly from the British viewpoint. And women, you know, Indian women were never characters except for maybe maids in those books. And then when I read books that were written by Indians, the British people were all bad guys. And I knew there had to be some in between and i was interested in exploring that through the life of a young woman coming coming of age in the 1930s and 40s of in india who becomes a player in the freedom movement
2: you know there lots of people want to write and i'm sure a lot of people in the audience do write and they would like to be published what is that process and i know For some people, it's walking up very boldly at a thriller fest, asking an agent, even though she hasn't written the thriller, to be her agent, which is bold and brazen, as Sister Joseph used to tell me all the time, and wonderful, I mean, it's amazing, but share with the audience your process with writing, and how did you get published? I know it's a big question, but break it down.
6: So, I had written two books before this book. Um, I was, obviously, I practiced law. I was in my first year at a big law firm in New York City, and I was very sad. Um, I was, uh, the moment I walked in, I realized I did not belong there. I had done the wrong thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was working um, probably until 3 o'clock in the morning most nights, and I would come home. I would walk my dog. And I would decide that it wasn't really worth um, going to sleep, so I started writing a book because I needed that outlet. Um, I tried to get that published, and it didn't work. And then I wrote another one, and I tried to get that published, and it didn't work. Um, so when this one came along, I did, I, and I stopped for 10 years, I did not write a thing. And I actually, it was really hard for me to even read books because it was so painful because I wanted this so much. Um, So when I wrote this one, I decided to take a different approach, and I would written my previous books kind of by myself, in my room, in my office, but this time I decided to expose my writing to other people, and I got a group of friends together, and I just kept asking people, please, please read this, tell me what you think about it, and through opening it up, I think it really brought in a lot of thoughts and made me hone the book more. Um, so you mentioned, Linda, that I, <laughs> that I went to a conference um, for thrillers, and this is not a thriller. This is an, a saga, and a family saga, but um, I went to this conference, and um, I did not have a thriller, but I sat down in front of the agents who were there, and I said, I don't have a thriller, but you have to listen to me, because you're going to love this book. Um, <laughs> and luckily enough, they did, and, and I ended up with an agent from that, and um, it was a dream come true.
2: Misty, I know you you did a lot of writing in your journal, and, you know, you were busy at a very young age, living your life and surviving, quite frankly. But the same question, did you ever imagine the things you wrote in your journal you would actually be using?
5: No. I mean, I have a a completely different... um, story from these writers (laughs) up here, and I'm so fortunate to have had the opportunity to to write. Um, But it it was an outlet for me, um, writing, and I started, I think, when I was about maybe 14 or 15 years old, just writing. Uh, I, I was so terrified to talk when I was younger. Um, and it's interesting that I ended up on a stage. But it was the first time that I felt like I had a voice and I didn't have to express it through my my actual speaking voice. Um, so in that same kind of way, I was writing instead of speaking out loud. So um, the process with Sharice uh, Jones writing this book, as all of you dancers know, we are so hard on ourselves and such perfectionists and it's so hard to put out a product and you want to have so much control over everything that's happening and for me it was it was difficult because I have a full time career and I was still trying to um, write everything and uh, I had to really let Charisse take the reins because she's an experienced writer and she really helped me to structure my story in a really beautiful way. Sujata?
3: When I finished college in the 80s, I went here to Hopkins. I knew I wanted to have a career writing, but I w- the, with the emphasis was career. I wanted to earn money. So I didn't dream of going into fiction. I started working as a journalist right here at a newspaper called the Baltimore Evening Sun, which some people may remember. It was wonderful. I was a features reporter there. And I only began writing fiction about five years after that. And what had happened is I'd gotten married to a wonderful guy who had a Navy commitment. So we moved to Japan together, and he worked for the Navy. And because I was a writer with time on my hands, that's when I started trying to write fiction. And so I I started writing a mystery set in Japan, and... When it it doesn't sound as easy as I say, you know, it took quite a few years. It took about four years, and then I joined some very supportive groups for mystery writers. There's an organization called Malice Domestic that has conventions and workshops in the the Maryland, D.C., and Virginia area. And I joined another group called Sisters in Crime, and they had things like grants and contests and... Chances to meet agents, and you know those ladies helped me get where I was. And fortunately, that first book that I started in Japan did sell. And you know, since then, this is number eleven, so I've been at it for a while.
2: Deborah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I think I always wanted to be, I'm sure, I always wanted to be a writer. The grandfather I told you about used to stop off on Fridays at the Kresge's and get me these little golden books. And I think that, you know, just the idea of writing has always been sort of a warm place for me, but I did many things before I actually started writing. It was a difficult I must say, too. It was a difficult moment in my life when I really got serious. I was going through a difficult time. And I got serious and thought, you know, really, if if I'm going to do this, this is the moment. So I did and was very fortunate because actually my ex-husband recommended my agent to me. He said just by serendipity, he said, this is the guy. And I was living in Rome at the time and um, came to New York and met with this agent and I remember we were sitting in this room uh, his office and you know I started telling him the idea for my last book my first book which is about my father essentially and um, and there was just like this quiet all around it I don't know how to explain it but it was just this very quiet quiet moment and he said I really want you to write this book for me and I did and um, he's always still my first reader after I get because he started out as an editor and he still got it in his blood and after he reads it then I give it to other people to read and um, that's what happened he Mm -hmm. sold the first one to a very wonderful editor and the second one too so I've been happy (laughs) (laughs) from a bad from a bad experience. That's what I always it was not a happy moment. It wasn't a time where you think, "Oh my god, I'm just feeling on top of the world. Let me just go right." It wasn't that moment that this <laughs> came from.
2: There are big themes in each of these books. Um, racism and fear and and a lot of uncertainty and for Palm who you know the amazing thing with Palm, which is uh, the main character in *The Sleeping Dictionary*, and, and the many name changes that she had to go through, sometimes not of her own making. And when she decided to choose her name, she really chose it and did her thing. Marcia Garcia until the well runs dry. Um, this was a woman who was taking care of two children at a very young age and keeping a very deep, deep secret. And Regina in The Secret of Magic, just this very secure and determined young woman, but it was as if she was a babe out of her element when she went down south. And then Misty, in her life, thinking about herself now but then. You know, at what point did you, did you get clarity and clear enough to, to write this story for Pom and Marsha? And Regina, and for yourself, Missy, when did that moment come and you said, "Okay, this is clicking. This makes sense." Sometimes I know because I'm a publicist and I read a lot of books. Sometimes I can actually see it as I'm reading a manuscript. Ah, here it is. You can, you, I can almost feel when the author gets that stride. So, take
3: it away, <laughs> <laughs> Sujata. Uh-huh. Well, it happened so long ago that it almost seems like I don't remember when this character Palm did not exist. Um, For me, I was really interested in events that happened in India, and um, one of the things that I didn't really know much about that happened during the World War II years was a really terrible rice famine within the state of Bengal in 1944. And what had happened is that the harvest was fine, but the British just took almost all the rice for the soldiers. So there was nothing left for the people in that state. And about 500,000 people starved to death. And I, I just had this image one day of this young, this Indian woman and a British man working together to serve, to serve rice and to serve the the fluid that comes after cooking rice, which is what people who are starving have to have. It's called fawn. Um, so I had this image, and I knew that I wanted to get this young woman to this place that she was going to be serving this rice and that this man was there, and he didn't mean to be there. Um, so for me, it, it's seeing events, and sort of from the event, that's how the story begins to unfold.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I knew that I wanted to do um, an African-American woman and I wanted, I, w- I knew this story, but I knew that I wanted the lawyer from the NAACP that went down there to be a woman, mainly because Thurgood Marshall, what, who was from Baltimore, as a matter of fact, the native son, uh, had hired Constance Baker Motley in 1946 to for as the first woman Uh, at the Legal Defense Fund. This was a tremendous moment. I mean, this was a time when white lawyers, there were very few white lawyers, and she, as an African-American lawyer, was, you know, just phenomenal. So I knew that I wanted to tell her story. I wanted this story to be from her point of view, and also to illustrate the fact that when Thurgood Marshall was working, all the lawyers at the Legal Defense Fund, that their vision did not just stop with African Americans moving forward. They wanted us all to move forward. They wanted women to move forward. They wanted everybody, you know, all, every, everybody to move forward. And I really, I could show this by putting this in the, through the eyes of a woman. Mm-hmm and especially one based on history.
5: Misty? Uh, This was the first time that I was really... a lot of my stories out there already and I felt that through this book it was my chance and opportunity to share my words and my experiences and what I thought of the people around me, especially making the decisions when I was too young to make them for myself. And I think during the process of writing about my childhood and really thinking about the decisions my mother made and the decisions my ballet teacher made um, that made me the person that I am today and kind of forgiving a lot of the bad things that happened in my past and learning from them. um, I think that helped me to be able to write about who I am today. Laura?
6: um, When I started this book, I have three alternating uh, narrators in in this book. Um, Masia is uh, the mother, the girl that you first meet. Uh, Then there is the the man that she fell in love with, and then their child, um, one of their children. This book started with that child, um, and I knew she had a difficult relationship with her mother. I knew that there was this mother in the background, and she was going to try to figure out how that relationship was going to work through this book. And as I started writing, the mother started to take over the book. And um, and yeah. I realized that I had been a daughter for more time than I'd been a mother. But as I started writing this book, the years were passing and I was becoming more, I was identifying more with being a mother than a daughter. and And I think that Character, my, my main character, Masia, the mother, is where this comes from. But obviously, her personality is not mine. <laughs> <laughs> that is my grandmother's personality. <laughs> mm hmm. Make a note of that. <laughs> you know, would you like to hear a little
2: reading now? What do you think? Misty,
5: please. Okay. <laughs> and ladies, think about what you'd like to read. So I'm reading um, a little passage from pretty early on in the book, um, from my childhood, right around the time I really uh, was transitioning into being a, a ballet student. The day after Mommy told me I would have to quit ballet, Cindy was waiting for me in front of the school, rifling through her organizer, looking up from time to time to see if I'd appeared. I opened the car door and got in beside her. I'm going to have to stop dancing, I blurted out, before breaking down into tears. My mother says that the studio's too far, that it's too much, that I'm missing out on time with my friends and family. Perhaps she would have been better able to understand if, like many concerned parents of ballerinas, my mother had been worried about my struggling schoolwork or fatigue. But this excuse seemed flimsy, even to me. Cindy looked as though she'd forgotten how to breathe. Her eyes were wide and glistening. We sat there for a minute, silent. Well then, she finally said, at least I can drive you home. I was too tired to protest, too grief-stricken to guard my secret. I gave her my address. We were quiet in the car. I tried to imagine what would fill the space that Valley had occupied, and I kept coming up empty. Finally, Cindy pulled to a stop. Staring at the rundown motel where my family was living, she looked as stunned as she had when I told her that I couldn't dance with her anymore. Thanks for the ride, I whispered as I hurried out of the car. Upstairs, I fumbled for the room key and entered the living room. Blankets rolled up near the spots where they would later be unfurled as makeshift beds. I'm sure Mommy didn't believe she was being neglectful. After all, we hadn't always lived that way, with pallets on the floor. We hadn't always called a motel with a lobby window to slide our rent check through home. We didn't always sleep around the corner from a highway lined with liquor stores and sketchy taco joints. But that's how we lived now. That's what Cindy saw. There was a knock on the door. Mommy, who'd been in the bedroom with Alex, came out and opened it. Cindy stood there tentatively. I could feel the tension building in the small space, a nearly tangible thing. I just wanted to disappear. She met my eyes where I sat with on the floor. I believed that she knew this was it. She either brought me with her that night and into the world she believed I was born to be a part of, or I would never dance again. The two women huddled a while, talking softly, crying. Mommy made it very clear that she had five other children. I was not, nor could I be, the center of her universe. I knew that, but I needed to be that to someone. I can't leave her, Cindy said, tears streaming down her face. I want Misty to come live with me. Then Mommy sighed and looked around the crowded motel room, and she let me go.
3: So, Jasper. Wow. Yeah. And her story's true. (laughs) Okay, mine is not. But it's true for Palm. Yeah, all right. Um, Jalpur, West Bengal, 1930. You ask for my name, the real one, and I cannot tell. It's not for lack of effort. In a proper circumstance, the narrator must give her name. In fact, one of the first English phrases I learned was, what is your good name? Over the years, people have called me many things. Not all of them are repeatable. But in the early days, I was always called Didi or Palm, the last being a village nickname you'll not find in any book. To me, Palm sounds hard, a hand on a drum or rain pounding on a tin roof. Both are sounds that I remember from the Bengali village where I was born, Jolpur, the town of water. Palm, Didi Palm. Those who shouted for me the most were my younger sisters, Rumi and Jumi, twins who looked as similar as grains of rice. But what a difference between them. Rumi was the easy one, quiet and helpful. Jumi cried more and always demanded to be carried, even when she and Rumi were big strapping girls of six. Double curses was what my grandmother Takuma called them. But when our father, who we called Baba, was alone with us, He would sometimes say that a girl's birth lengthened a father's life and that for having three strong girls, he might live to 100. I tell you this only so you understand how rich I once was. But nobody in my family understood that those days were perfect ones. Most mornings when my mother made her prayers, she whispered her hopes for a son. If Goddess Lakshmi would bring one, my mother was willing to give her a goat or five rupees. Anything for the boy everyone wanted. Then in the spring of 1930, the flatness under Ma's sari rounded. Takuma and Dadu, my grandparents, were suddenly happy with everything she did, and my father sang songs every evening. As summer came, my mother's belly expanded to the size of a good pumpkin. I marked my 10th birthday, and we ate sweet piash pudding to celebrate. It was the same time that the daughter of Jamidar Pratap Mukherjee, the landed aristocrat who owned all the rice fields, was studying with a foreign governess. The Jamidar's daughter had long been my object of fascination because of her lacy pastel frocks and the white-skinned dolls she carried. I did not know the little girl's name then, for we could not ask such a thing of our superiors. In my mind, I called her the princess, and that was not out of envy but amazement that another little girl could be so different. My acquaintance with the Jamidar's household formed at the time I was about seven, old enough to walk distances carrying a bundle of homemade brooms that Ma and I sold throughout the villages. When we reached the Jamidar's estate, the ritual was always the same. A servant would call for the Jamadarni to see us. She would come out with her daughter hiding behind the folds of her shining silk sari. Then our two mothers would examine the brooms, hers looking down and mine squatting on the stone veranda, turning over each of our brooms to find her best. The jamadarni would suggest that her sweeper didn't really need a new broom. Then my mother would counter, jamadarni, Mem sab, the rains are coming in with the mud. Or if it were a few months earlier, this is a frightfully dry season, please look at the dust on your veranda. It's a shame your sweeper missed it not the woman's fault, just the brooms. On our last call to the estate, my mother was heavily pregnant and could not make her usual bright banter. Perhaps because of my mother's condition, the jamadarni gave me a gaze that seemed especially soft. This gave me the bravery to ask where the princess was hiding herself. The jamadarni replied with a word I hadn't heard before, school. Two Ingridge women came to the house to teach the princess reading and writing in numbers, all in English. The Ingrid had turned a parlor into a proper schoolroom with a desk and a chair and a blackboard on which they wrote with a short white stick. Would you like to see her? The Jamadarni asked in her gentle voice. As I was nodding my head, Ma said no. Disappointment flooded me, but she ignored the look I gave her. The Jamadarni asked why I wasn't in school. She'd heard some village children were learning to read and write under the banyan tree behind Mitra Babu's shop. Then I understood what she meant by the word school, because I'd seen boys sitting in Mitra Babu's yard scratching with reeds on palmyra leaves. For a girl like me, there would never be time to sit under a tree. That was why Ma hadn't wanted me to see the Jamadarni's daughter in her special room. I said to myself, it didn't matter. I didn't want to be the only girl studying with those boys, and I was already doing something more important than they. I was with Ma earning money for the family, and I didn't need a numbers class to know how to count coins. By the age of 10, I was proud that I couldn't be cheated. All this I wished I could say, but it wasn't my place. Ma was murmuring something about needing my help now that a baby was coming. She placed her hand on her belly, emphasizing this, And the Jamadarni pledged she would make a special prayer for a boy. Ma smiled, looking as grateful as if the Jamadarni had bought ten brooms. And that day, the Jamadarni bought her broom without bargaining.
4: I usually start reading from the second chapter, but I'm going to just read a short piece from the very beginning of the book. In this piece, I have to set it up a little bit. I have a decorated war hero, Joe Howard Thurman. I mean, Joe Howard, Thurman's my <laughs> grandfather. Joe Howard Wilson, who is on his way back after fighting at the, the Battle of Agonophily. He is on an interstate bus that's going from, uh, through Alabama to mi- his home in Mississippi. And I don't know if I said that the time is October 1945. He's just been honorably discharged. And he's sitting next to a young boy named Manasseh, whose mother had put him on in Birmingham. The bus lumbered off asphalt unto gravel and groaned to a stop. Again, Joe Howard looked out of the window, and this time the twilight had formed itself into a sign, Aliceville, Alabama. That's when he remembered about Aliceville. There was a prisoner of war camp here for Germans. He'd read about it, probably in Stars and Stripes. This was a good, out-of-the-way place for something like that. Joe Howard pried down his windows so that he could see the sign better and so that he could smell the earth and the trees. He squinted out but didn't see any trace of a the camp. There were no low buildings, no barbed wire. Alabama wasn't like Italy, at least the Italy he knew, where every hill, every valley, every stretch of land had something man-made on it. A barn filled with straw, a stone house, a fence, some place that a German could easily hunker down behind and hide behind until the time came to cry out, gotcha. You getting out, he asked Manasseh. Manasseh, carefully instructed by his mother, shook his young head. Not even to go to the bathroom? No, not even for that. Joe Howard didn't feel much like getting off himself, but he had to call his daddy. He promised. Nowadays, these little, state, inter, these little interstate buses took forever to get where they were going. They stopped where they wanted to, stringing little half-known towns in Alabama and Mississippi together like so many beads on a rosary chain. With first the fury of war and now the slow discharge of its dismantlement causing so many detours, there was no telling when a person could actually get where he was going. Even the printed schedules had started summarizing arrival times as around and about. But around and about were not good enough for his daddy. He'd want to know more precisely than this when Joe Howard would actually get to Revere. You call me when you get close now, son. Let me know because I want to be there at the station to greet you, and the church wants to be there. Reverend Petty's bringing the mothers and all the folks, all the folks. His daddy's voice had choked up then, an amazement to Joe Howard, who was used to thinking of his daddy's love for him as a force, capable of overcoming all obstacles, not as an emotion that might weaken him, might make him cry. So he'd said a little too quickly, last stop in Alabama, I'll call, I promise. So now he got up, walked off that bus, and went in an old-fashioned street door under a turned-off electric sign that proclaimed, Dr. Pepper, it's good for you. He hadn't had a Dr. Pepper in a while, and he'd grown up on them, on them and on RC Colas and on the treat of a honey bun when he worked in the field. He thought about ordering one now, but there were no colored people in the bus depot. And his was the only military uniform. He decided it might be better to make his telephone call, get it over with, get back on the bus. The air in the depot smelled just like everything Southern he remembered. Even inside, no matter where you were, there was always a hint of the earth and the things that died on it. You could not get away from the scent of things, from the richness of them, if you had lived, like he had lived, so near the ground. Joe Howard couldn't quite make out exactly what track he was pulling in, maybe a deer passing, maybe the dead end of the summer's kudzu decaying on the vine, but if his daddy were here, he'd be able to call it out, to tell it w- what it was that was trickling at their minds. Willy Willy knew all about the earth and its ways. Mm. Thank you. I, it's not giving away the book to say that this man's just about to be killed.
6: So I'll set mine up as well. Um Masia Gassia and Farouk Karam have just seen each other for the first time at a mutual friend's house, and he is very smitten and uh, finds himself traveling up to the north of Trinidad to find her. I had only been twice before, but what I most remembered about Blanche was the quiet. At the end of the main road where the spring bridge arched over the Marianne River had to be the quietest place on earth. I could sit on that bridge six hours a day and not hear one other human sound except my own breath rattling over the trickling water and my own feet tapping in rhythm to the rustling of a million trees. And when that river detoured into some thick woodlands I'd probably never see, my imagination had no choice but to roam wild and free with it. In Blanchiches, people could live simple lives. While mothers scrubbed tattered clothes and gossiped alongside friends, children played on steep, rugged cliffs, dove into frigid fresh water, and laughed by the riverside, half naked for long afternoons. Me showing up there, asking the neighbors questions, and trying to learn that gal's routine naturally upset some things. People in Blanchiches didn't want to be bothered by outsiders. But there was something else. I'd been a policeman for years, and there was something about the way those neighbors were holding back words that didn't set well. By the way her house set at an angle, it was difficult from the road to tell how far it stretched behind the front door. It didn't seem like much. Crooked and unsteady on its legs, it wasn't any wider than two outhouses squeezed together. Close to the porch steps, heaps of black, brown dirt were piled to one side with no signs of grass ever having grown there. There were no fruit-bearing trees in the yard, which was almost impossible in Trinidad, and wild bamboo stalks seemingly misplaced sat in a patch of tall grass covering the only window on the left side of the house. The one noteworthy plant remaining was a brawny purpleheart tree to the right of the porch, where I was standing when she opened the front door. Her jaw stiffened and her eyebrows seemed to collapse when she saw me. She had been ready to collect water, not a man, her face seemed to say. Good morning, I said. Two old timers, a man and a woman, slowed to eavesdrop while she walked down the rocky slope toward the road. She was as beautiful as I remembered. She wore a loose yellow cotton sleeveless dress that tickled her knees. Her brown hair had a golden shimmer and was pulled into a neat thick bubble tucked above her broad shoulders. Her bombsy was like a perfectly round melon and she had the slightest bandy leg, that soft bow between her thighs which made me long to know her better. But she strode right past me, her two empty buckets swinging alongside her. Girl, Amanda, show up to greet you in the morning and you have nothing to say? I scrambled to catch up with her. She held her head high and her knuckles pale from the tight grip on the handles. She was a strong walker with an even stronger will not to speak to me. (laughs) But I hadn't gone all the way into the bush to have some gal pass me by. I trotted patiently behind her until I got it into my head to tug at her elbow. It was just a small tug. Don't touch me, Naman. What's wrong with you, I said, pulling back. What's wrong with me? Her pace slowed. You come to my home uninvited. Have some respect now. Respect? What do you think this is? I just want to talk. She walked downhill toward a red painted standpipe. I was taking two steps for her every one. The cool daybreak breeze suddenly changed into wind gusts, causing strands of her well-groomed hair to dance. You doesn't know who I live here with. You doesn't know if I have a man or a husband. I know you live alone. I jogged backwards in front of her. I wanted to see her reaction. She shook her head in disgust. You don't know me, she said. That's why I'm here. Maybe I don't want to be known. I hear that too, I said. "'You don't want to talk to nobody? "'You're living like a crazy old lady "'and you're a young gal, a young, beautiful woman, "'a squat fella with egg whites in his mustache shuffled toward us. "'Don't pretend like you know me "'cause you shook some neighborhood tree "'and got a little rotten fruit.' "'She politely nodded to the fella. "'He impolitely ignored her. "'Everybody's a stranger to you, gal, "'even the neighbors,' I said. "'If so, that's a problem.' "'Whose problem?' "'She slammed her buckets down. "'It's looking like your problem "'since you was the one holding up my tree this morning.' I laughed, but she turned away. The person who'd been at the standpipe ahead of her had left the faucet open. She slipped off her sandals and stepped into the deep pool of standing gray water. After filling her bucket, she steadied herself and began carrying them back up the steep slope. She handled them like heartily, like a strapping man. It was clear my assistance wasn't needed. May I? I tapped her hand. Boy, that girl had skin like silk. Forget silk, like butter. (laughs) <laughs> it looked downright tasty too. <laughs> nah man she pulled away. I was relieved. I wasn't sure I could carry those damn buckets. <laughs> yet, yet for some reason I offered a second time. That time she stopped. She set the buckets down, threw up her hands. I wobbled. It'd been years since I carried much of anything, and though it required prayer, I finally arrived at her door. <laughs> Thank you, she said, giggling at the multiple puddles I left on the small porch. Good day. She took hold of her door, which barely fit in its frame, and shut it closed. I heard the sound, unusual in Blanchiches, of a metal latch being hooked. Mm. <laughs> wow, so
2: So beautiful and lush and lyrical. How much research did you have to do for your work?
3: Lots. <laughs> I'll start. I, I I had to go to India um, to walk through the scenes of my book. I had to go to London because the British Library is the place where they keep all the police records from that time. And I had heard rumors about sp- uh, British spies and spy agencies, and I was able to get into some papers there. And then, you know, language is also something I think is really important, especially for someone who's writing a book with a foreign setting who's not fluent in a language. Um, You know, I studied Hindi for a while um, to try to understand better how to structure the dialogue in my book. And I worked with an old... I found this wonderful old dictionary that had a lot of proverbs in it, you know, things like... um, Things about grains of rice and only a a diamond cutter recognizes a diamond and all those kinds of things that we would say they say in India too. And the, the problem was that dictionary of Proverbs was in Bengali. So my father had to translate it for me and he translated every single proverb and I listened to them all and thought about whether I could use them in my book. And so that was a really wonderful part of research, uh, working with my father. But I would say in all it was you know at least two full years of research to write that book. Wow. Deborah?
4: Well, um, it was a lot of research. I'm fortunate because I live in Mississippi which is filled with storytellers and so everybody pretty much in my town uh, know so to get the place of Mississippi was fairly easy because we've got good archives you know fair so to get the people that was that was easy at least the people in Mississippi and their interaction the more difficult part Um, was to put together the story, and I did that by going through the cases that Thurgood Marshall and the Legal Defense Fund had done immediately after the war, which is how I came on the Isaac Woodard story, which is the basis of the book. And it was uh, traumatic. It was not happy research to do this. Tell us
2: about that story.
4: What happened with, uh, Mr. Woodard was that in, um, 1945, he had served 15, he also had ser- was serving, of course, in a segregated army and, um, did not have effectively the right to vote in his home state, which was South Carolina. And he was on a bus, he'd been in the last months of the fighting in the Philippines, which were horrific for anybody. He was on a bus. He wanted to go see his mother. She lived in Aiken, and he was on a bus. I think from I'm not from Beaufort, Beaufort whatever however it's pronounced, on his way to Aiken. Now there are lots of different stories about what happened, but essentially, but uh, this part is known that he did something to offend the white bus driver. It could just have been the fact that you know he was in uniform. He was the white bus driver said that he had uh, taken too long in the restroom that he was and he so he had inconvenienced the white ladies on the bus and um, he or that he had was boisterous. The story got more and more as as the as things evolved. But in any in any event, he was taken off the bus at the next stop. The bus driver called ahead. He was taken off the bus by the sheriff and the deputy sheriff and um, mr. Woodard insisted on his legal rights I mean he'd just come back from fighting in this war they were obviously not used to this and they started to beat him they took him to this is, they took him to um, the police station where the deputy took um, his billy club and systematically blinded him in both eyes. They left him, this is not graphic in my book I have to say, they left him um, in that condition for two days when they finally took him to the um, Aiken Hospital where uh, he couldn't even remember anything that had happened to, or who he was. But his family was looking for him and they finally located him And when they found out what had happened to them, I mean, I guess the sheriff and the deputy, they're used to, like, being able to do things like this and nothing ever happened to them, but this time something did. The family took it to Thurgood Marshall and the Legal Defense Fund, and they sent lawyers down, and they really, really fought this case. It became their, one of their most important post-war cases and completely changed the the texture of what they were doing because they worked so hard on this case. Of course, they lost, but and it was I mean they lost on appeal, but they did fight and they continued to fight and we have the world that we have now, which is
6: by any accounts a better world.
2: Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Lauren,
6: um, I would agree that lots of research went into this book. Um, My grandmother was born and raised in the town that I talk about in this book so in my heart it was a familiar place but I did have to travel to Trinidad um, a couple of times with my family, my mother kind of winding us around the roads and showing us different places but the better part of my experience was similar to yours in that I, I had to spend a lot of time talking to my parents about this book. Um, and that was fantastic to share this with them and to have them help with that. Um, I also dragged my husband to New York (laughs) um, for some very long, long walks along, um, along Brooklyn and along Manhattan to try to get the feel, and I'd lived in New York, but when you were writing a book where you have to um, show the experience of coming someplace for the first time, you have to see things in a different way. Uh, so walking the streets and trying to get myself to feel the newness of the city that I would lived in was really hard, and, um, and it was a part of the book that I failed at probably three or four times before I feel like, I hope anyway, I got it right. Uh, so... It wasn't just the research of, of research involved with writing and reading. It was a lot of just kind of feeling the emotions of it, and I, I consider that a large part of my research as well.
2: You know, Misty, do do you, um, I always think about music as I read books. That's just I love music, and it, it, I hear different songs as I'm reading different things, even in different cultures. And I'm curious. I don't know. In your book, Misty, you talk about all the music that you grew up with and how it really was like a bomb for you in, for certain periods of time but for all the panelists did you think about how music might play with the story and missy you can answer that first
5: well, my discovery of of dance and movement was came because of the music that i grew up on or that my mother was playing which was a lot of r b and soul music and then as a Teenager, hip hop and rap and everything. So that's kind of what um, encouraged me to start moving, and that's how I discovered that I liked dancing. So that music played a huge role in my life in transitioning into dance, and then it's in the it's in the book a lot as
6: well.
1: Anybody else?
6: Yeah, um, Trinidadians love music and. and this book, in many ways, is um, is a, a very lyrical book for that reason. Um, I actually have a lot of the songs that were um, were popular in, during the time that the book was set in and is part of uh, the headings of many of my chapters. And so, yeah, you know, it, it really did play a huge role in, in, in kind of developing the feel of it. But in the book, Farouk tells Masia at one point, that they remember years by by songs and um, and that really informed you know not just these two characters but it reminded me that that's true for me too I re- you know I remember where I was when a certain song came out I re- you know and a lot of it is hip hop and R and B too but <laughs> but I remember those things and and music does um, ground you sometimes and I think that's true for my characters and true for me
2: mm-hmm. anybody else.
6: Well, of course, with this book, I was um, thinking of
4: Cab Calloway, who also is from his many, the moocher is actually words from this book, but the big band sound. I used to play all these, like 1940s, the war songs, and it was, it was wonderful to do that. You know, you, it takes you right back. The music of a period puts you right in that period more than I
2: think anything else does. Did you play the music while you were writing?
4: No, I have to have – but, you know, afterwards, when mm-hmm. I was so relieved to have finished <laughs> <laughs> for the day, yeah, came right up.
3: So, Jeff- Deborah, we were in the same cocktail lounge because <laughs> of the time period I was writing about American jazz music was the backdrop for this interracial romance in India because that they were, you know – Fleeing, whatever, you know, that this was music that expressed who they were. And it was also the war years, so a lot of music was coming and being spread by the soldiers into India. So it's sort of, you know, I don't write a lot about it, but there are some quotations from um, jazz toward the end of my book.
2: Who are some of your favorite writers, some of the favorite books? Because, I mean, I'm always of the mindset that a good writer is someone who reads so who are some of your favorites
4: oh gosh this is a hard one because whatever it is it's always what's right there at the top of my head because you know whatever i'm reading right then because then i go down and there's so many more but i always love zora neilhurst and i love her because she has such exuberance and she's just great to write read um flannery o'connor she was i went to catholic school she was um, my great nun she was the first adult that we read more quickly than mark twain or anyone like that who else did i I just was rereading giovanni's room Mm -hmm. so you know he's just great and that's Baldwin. they can go on and on i can go on and on and on but those are the ones just off the top right oh and tana french she's Mm -hmm. my favorite contemporary i have to say
6: okay This is like asking who your favorite child is. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, Gloria Naylor, Mama Day, mm-hmm. just I, that did something to me in a way that I, I I can't explain and I read that book over and over again. Um, and Toni Morrison, which everyone mentions her, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, You know, but I I also like a lot of the classics. Um, Wuthering Heights is my favorite book. Um, And I like Ian McEwen. Um, But if I have to say something that would be a little weird, it would be Stephen King. That's not weird. Yeah. You know, um, not just because he's prolific, but because he takes you away. You go into a book by Stephen King, and you're in a different world. And I think that is the mark of a beautiful, wonderful writer. And, you know, even if he isn't considered literary by the literary circles, um, I love him.
3: I love books set in foreign countries that expose things I just never would have found in a history book. So I love the novels of Lisa C., which are mm-hmm. set in China, and they explore Chinese history through the lives of women, you know, through young girls and through mothers, and I have just really admire those books. And another writer of, of international fiction that really made an impression of me is Abraham Verghese, who wrote a book called Cutting for Stone that was very successful a few years ago, and that, that's a novel about um, Indian immigrants living in Ethiopia who then wind up coming to the United States and I learned so much about medicine, about people, about Africa. I, I love that book.
5: I agree with the Stephen King over there. I think that a lot of, um, as an artist, you want to escape reality. <laughs> And you kind of want to be transported into a a place where maybe you would never have an opportunity to be. Um, And a lot of my reading and research is done when I'm researching for a character. So a lot of that, as uh, this generation, is Googling um, (laughs) different eras and and kind of reading in that way. But if I have the time to, it's something light. So I'm going to say Emily Giffen.
2: (laughs) If you had to do anything over... With your book, you turned your book in. It's done. I hear this a lot because I work with authors all the time. It's like, oh, if was there anything that you would do differently, you think?
4: Take I it away. Have it right on the top of my, I doubt. Uh, in the author, it would be the author's note, and in the uh, because in the author's note, I thank these four people: my grandfather as inspirations for this book, Constance Baker Motley, Thurgood Marshall, and Isaac Woodard. But another thing that I really left out of that author's note that's very important is that when I moved, to me it's important, when I moved to Mississippi about 10 years ago, I got immediately ill, but I met a, tons of people. I mean, I, and they were very, very kind to me. And there were a number of older white ladies who generally get a bad rap in fiction who you would look <laughs> at them. You would look at them, older white Southern ladies, I should say, and you would realize they were so really good people, very, very kind to me, genuinely kind. And you would look at these ladies who many times were in their 80s, 90s, they've all gone now, but you would know that they had gone through many changes in their lives that they hadn't expected to go through and that they had actually done this even though it was difficult that they had done this with a fair amount of grace. And, you know, the stories that came out, this was genuinely true, told by whites and blacks a lot. And I really wish that I had mentioned some of these women in my author's note, because they were a great inspiration for this story, certainly for Mary Pickett Calhoun in this book. Mm-hmm. And who are they? Well, one was our librarian, Chibi Bateman, Another one was Lilla Rosamond who lived across the street from me. All these ladies were in their 90s. And um, another one was Ann Hardy who came from a very, comes married into a very old Mississippi family. Very, very nice ladies, very kind and very intelligent who had really witnessed, not only witnessed, but in a couple of instances instigated some of these changes that we have in Mississippi. Hmm. So.
5: Any changes? Anything different? Um, there were things like towards the end of my book that um, I feel like I would want to enrich the way that they came across. But I'm just again, we're our own worst critic, and and I've had you know friends and that have read it that think that those are the best chapters towards mm-hmm. the end. So, um i'm I'm very happy with how it all turned out. We'll see how my family feels.
3: <laughs> I would have cut this book in two, and I would have made two books out of it because it takes to write a book like this, it could take four years. So, and I, I just don't want to go underground writing again for another four years. So I wish I could have figured out a way to do that to have turned this into two books. <laughs>
6: Say no. <laughs> I, not that I think it's perfect, but um, but it's pretty darn close. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I,
2: I, I love this. This uh, the debut novelist who, by the way, her book comes out on April 22nd. Okay, so I'm going to call her on April 23rd mm. and say, Lauren. No, teasing you. Do we have any questions for the panelists? Yes, young lady, is there a mic around? Yeah, can can someone be kind enough and pass it? Thank you. Yeah, and that young lady right there. What your people? She's got a shirt on.
1: I have a question for Misty Copeland. Um, when did you find out that you fell in love with ballet?
5: Um, so yeah, I didn't know anything about ballet um, until I was 13 years old, and I was kind of pushed into this basketball – This basketball (laughs) and pushed into a ballet class on a basketball court um and I really didn't like it in the beginning I it was so foreign to me and that scared me to do anything that made me step out of my comfort zone uh but when I finally got into a studio and I was surrounded by other dancers um I think that was when I realized like oh this is this is amazing, this art form, and hearing like a live pianist in a class. Uh, And then when I got on stage for the first time, it was, I felt so empowered and I was like, I can't do anything else with my life. I, I could shut everyone out and I was up there by myself and it was powerful and all I could receive was applause.
2: Question in the back?
4: Um, any of you can answer this
6: Um, I'm working on a project right now and uh, how much support uh, did it take for you to get the book
4: done because I know a lot of support um, has not I would say people don't have that much support in what you do as your book is being written, so how much support did you get for that? Because that's what I'm looking for as well. I'm going to take that. I think that when you start a project, like Missy was saying, that you sort of are in it by yourself for a minute. And that's an important place to be because you can clarify your thinking, you have a firm idea of what you want to do and that becomes part of you before you give it out to somebody else. Once you start giving it out, then you get more support, but I think that or more external support. But I think it's very important that early process so that you learn to sort of support yourself and to stand up for your vision and to clarify what your vision is that
6: you are standing up for. That's my view. When I started this book, I, um, I still have two small children, but they were much smaller then. Um, and I really sought the support that I needed. Um, My sister, I asked her to watch the kids so I could go to a class um, on Monday nights and she said yes. Um, I begged my husband to take the kids sometimes so I could just, you know, and I don't know if they really believed in my dream as much as as I believed in my dream, but they said yes. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't say yes, I would have done something else, I think. I would have, you know, I would have asked another person. So. Um, so if I could say anything, just keep asking. Someone's going to say yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Question in the back. Gentleman.
5: Ms. Copeland, do you have a favorite ballet and composer? Wow. Yeah. Um, Stravinsky. Uh, uh, I love Philip Glass music though as well but as as far as ballets I think that um, La Bayadere is probably one of my all time (laughs) (laughs) one of my all time favorites Um, I just feel like so many cultures can I mean it's set in India but I feel like so many people can relate to it um, and I can see so many different types of people portraying the characters in La Bayadere <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, young lady, right in the
5: front. Was the life had to go I mean, at the time when I was living it, I didn't think it was hard because it was all I knew. Uh, looking back on it, I feel like I'm grateful to have come from the struggles that I did. Uh, because I don't take anything for granted, yeah. and um, and it makes me that much more fortunate to uh, be in the position that I'm in, and to have opportunities like this to be up here with these amazing women. So, <laughs> young lady, right there.
2: Right, there's a the mic right there.
1: Um, was it hard to, like, put your personal thoughts out in a book for the whole world to read?
5: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it just came out, so it's a little scary. <laughs> I don't know. Like, to see how people are going to react. But, you know, my the point of sharing my story wasn't to put a, anyone in a bad light or make them look bad, even if there were negative actions that they took. Um, but I just wanted to really just share my my experiences with what they did. Uh, yeah it's scary it's scary but I think it's also healthy to, to, to share and get it out there mm-hmm. <laughs> sir.
6: question. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. Um, I, I started this book and, you know, when my grandmother was sick, I was thinking about, um, you know, this idea that I'm a, an Ivy League educated lawyer and, um, and she came here and scrubbed toilets most of her life. Um, And I thought, in one generation, that's happened, you know. Um, And, um, but I also felt a huge sense of disconnection from Trinidad. Um, I grew up in Baltimore, and it wasn't, at that time, it wasn't a lot of other Trinidadians around. And I struggled, personally, a lot with kind of the identity that that was at home in my house, and the identity of... Of my friends and who I wanted to to portray I was, um, and as I, I think as I was writing this book I realized that I could have done a better job, um, that that holding on to the part of my you know my heritage and my my home and my my family life was just as important as making myself an American, and you know and granted I was born here but you know what it's like when you have. Um, Trinidadian parents or parents from another country, and trying to bridge those two. So um, assimilation—I don't know. You know, America—we're all we're all from someplace else originally, right? I mean, and I think that we forget that. And I think that this book for me was a reminder at this time with the political environment that we're in that we have all come from some place, and it's really important to support people. Here is a political, a political moment I'm having, but it's really important to not forget that, to forget not to forget that that is the reason that we are a great country. That I could be the child, the grandchild of my grandmother is because someone opened a door and allowed us to have a moment here.
2: Yes, in the back, in the chair..
6: My questions for Misty um,
2: I just want to know if you ever like look back at uh, your life and never think like what would have happened if you
5: would have taken a different road? Y- yes I do especially with writing with writing the book it made me um, realize how much ballet uh, has shaped who I am uh, and I I've said this a lot recently but I was so underdeveloped as a child Um, from the situation I was in in my house and not really having a nurturing family environment, that I was probably at the level of like a seven-year-old when I was 13. And the leaps and bounds that I made uh, because of the art form of ballet, uh, I cannot imagine who and where I would be without it. Like, I definitely wouldn't be able to, I think, stand on a stage and speak in front of people and share my thoughts and ideas, and uh, it's, I, that's, I think art is so critical for a child.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Yes. I know it's
1: like a, a self-published office and office going publishing houses, but I was wondering, especially for the color, have the experiences where, in the publishing houses or editors or agents who are trying to push you to write in a particular vein that you did not wish to
4: write or steer you in a particular direction because you were doing it, because you were in living
1: it. Um, did you feel freedom to write as you
3: Well, I can take that, and I've actually done some self-publishing, too, so I can tackle that because I think it's nice to be a hybrid and do both. Um, I feel like the writing programs at at universities is sometimes where people get pigeonholed and told to go a certain direction. Um, And I really did not intend to write about India at all. Because I thought that it was crazy that just because I had an Indian name, um, that that was all that I knew. I thought I was way more than that. And that's sort of why I went to Japan in the beginning. And I only came around to India in my good time when I felt like I wanted to. Um, I think that by the time you get to the stage where you meet a publisher, you've, got, you've shown them what you want to write. And, and either they like it or they don't like it um, so I think it's sort of making the decision you for yourself in, in the very beginning is quite important and you can always change look at me I started out writing mysteries set in modern Tokyo and now I'm I'm locked in early 20th century India for a little while and, and I can go back and forth if I like time travel I enjoy it
2: anybody else? No? Any other questions? Oh, in the back. My um, policy is like such an audible process to you, right? How do
1: you find the price to get it? That's
6: a good question. Good um, question. Yeah, no, you're right. It is. Uh, it's very personal and um, it, you're exposing yourself uh, and... Um, and I was scared for a long time, so and I was scared after I failed the first time, and I was scale, scared after I failed the second, and I was really scared this time because um, because I said I was not going to do this anymore. I was just going to give it up so um, so I think I think that for me anyway, I, I, having children <laughs> was far scarier <laughs> than this book. Um, and it put things, for me, it put things in perspective. It made me realize that, um, that there are more important things in life, that there were people who relied on me and were, you know, and, and needed me to feed them and to bathe them. And, and when I put that in perspective, this became easy. And I think that that's, you don't have to be a mother to have that experience. You can think about all the things that you do that, makes you, that make you brave and remind yourself that you have that courage in, in, in everyday life.
2: Any other questions? In the back? Mm-hmm. Um, my question's for Misty. How did you maintain your confidence through the discrimination and the prejudice that came in classical ballet
1: training?
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, Initially, it was just being having amazing mentors that entered my life during a really low point of feeling alone as the only black woman in my company for over a decade. Um, it was just having amazing support initially, and then believing in myself. I think that for me, it was a lot of that came from came from within, but I had to accept. Um, the advice and the help and the guidance from others. That's what really, really got me through it.
2: Any other questions? Okay, ladies, I want you to tell us in five words what your book is, what's it mean to you? From your heart, five words. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Misty, come on, this is easy compared to what you
5: do. <laughs> um, it's it's um, vulnerable, brave, um, courageous, how many is that? Three. Uh, <laughs> um, role model in future. Fabulous. Thank you. My goodness.
4: I'd say that change is possible. Uh-oh, that's ten
2: words. No, that's
5: four.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I say that change is possible. Eight.
4: <laughs> okay, well, since I'm already over. I'm <laughs> and the value of hope, I think, of hope.
2: Okay. <laughs>
6: Lauren, um, let's see. motherhood, love, migration, Trinidad, um, grief, hmm.
3: freedom, daughters, spice
2: mm.
3: passion India
2: yeah. <laughs> right. please give this fabulous panel a round of applause